You're listening to Force Fed Digital. BXU Heard. Here is something you can't understand How I could just kill a man Here is something you can't understand How I could just kill a man That song was crazy cause There's a lot of relevance in my life And a lot of trauma that I experienced with that song So we're gonna get into it The title of this episode, which is episode 3 Is How I Could Just Kill a Man So welcome to My Bronx Story I am your host, Kingsbridge Rich Thus far, you've been with me on this journey, three episodes in. I guess we're family now. Welcome. You can get stuff out the fridge now, all right? You could take your shoes off and proceed. And what I mean by that is that you can follow me on other socials. If you've been here this long, then feel free to follow me on IG, right, as my Bronx story. Or you can head on over to TikTok and you can find me there as Kingsbridge underscore rich, which is Kingsbridge rich. So yeah, I rep Kingsbridge. And if you're not familiar with this podcast, listen to episode one and listen to episode two and follow me everywhere and you'll get to know me and you get to know what I'm talking about. But today, episode three, we're going to dig right in. And um, pretty much I want to start off with how this week has been going for me. I'm recovering from a long week. It was my daughter's uh, Sweet 16. And you hear Sweet 16s and you, ima- you imagine already these like grand events and just filled with plenty of people. And in my case, uh, that would have not been a possibility, but I'm so thankful that my daughter in her innocence and she's just such a little cool vibe that she doesn't require all that attention. It, it make it too complicated for me because... It's her day, but I kind of have the convenience in that in the way she is. She doesn't need much that I was able to get around. What will otherwise be a hard planning made it a lot easier. And um, in that planning, we actually have to plan around my mother being there. And what's so surprising about that, I did something with what a lot of people considered bad and had given me problems over. And I got a lot of heat over it. And um, I pretty much cut my mother off for the last two years. And already without seeing your faces, seeing your reactions, I can imagine that there's a mixed bag because I've took into social media before in the past and I've gotten a mix of support, people who've been in this position because estrangement is a huge thing. And especially in like the minority quote unquote populations. Black and Latino families, we kind of structured in a way where it's more typical that as a family, you keep it within those walls and people don't know the terrible things that happen inside. And the problem with that is that so much can go on for so long that we kind of have these monsters that continue with their appetites. And it sucks that by using the term monster, that can probably hit it on the head for a lot of people. Because that's what it's like being in households where there's this narcissism and toxicity. All these terms that were not as prevalent back in the days, they were studied, but they weren't like common terms, like how we're learning about, which I got my, you know, my, my degree in TikTok University myself, I must say. But 
it was a very big deal. It was um, something that even in its simplicity, uh, planning this very intimate Sweet 16, there was no working around the fact that my mother was going to be there. I haven't spoken to her in two years, which was my calling. It was, uh, it was stemming from a situation I had that I guess I can say, and I'm not scared of details, I'll share a lot, follow me, you'll learn a lot about you know some of the, ba- the past and the background and all of that. So it's just, I got a story to tell. So, um, but nonetheless, you know, what made it hard was um, that I got to a point through a situation that had occurred that like I had a, a, a major realization and in that major realization, like there was so much clarity that I had to move back into a safe space to process everything. And I had spent so many years not processing it. And it's been tucked away in so many places. And I found certain antidotes through life as we all do. And many of us, we, we reach out and run to attention. We reach out and run to drugs. We reach and run out to other types of pleasures. And we get caught up because we never address what's inside the core. So for two years, these last two years, I had been processing things. I'd had therapy as well, which I will get into. But for the first time now, it was becoming a reality. I had made this decision that, you know what, I think it's time. I don't want to keep this event from my mom. But at the same time, I'm ready for her energy and her presence. And it's okay. And I have boundaries and I'm not afraid to share what those are. So again, it was a big deal. And you mean, you know enough, like when you're going to invite people to an event, it's hard enough to get that invite list without thinking about who you're going to offend. So there's just certain people like, it's like, it's like throwing darts if you don't invite them. Like how you don't invite to a Sweet 16 grandma. Like that's wild, you know, but the move wasn't coming from a place of avoiding that because I'm with it. I'm with all the smoke because I'm at a stage in my life that I've evolved to the point that, you know, my circle is pretty small and what I want is very clear. And what I don't want is right outside. This is my perimeter, everything outside. You can leave it there where I can kind of hear it, but it's not touching me. So I had to build up to that. And it took me a couple of years and, you know, and it went well. I have to say that I'm not staying on that too long, but it went well. And it was something foreign. It was something I got a lot of heat over because, you know, people hang over your head their expectations. You know, I guess I've been stomaching. I've been stomaching this for so long that it's such a shock that in my 40s, I make a move like this. You know, people sometimes expect that, hey, he's suffered for so long. She's suffered for so long. Why now? We see that with like rape victims and, you know, people sometimes get at the victim because what they're supposed to be a statue of limitations, you know, especially when we've come from communities and like myself, where you had to hide it and put it away. And there wasn't much of a space or place for you to process. Because again, there was stigma in the eighties and the nineties with mental health, with health in general, but especially mental health. Like our communities thought that we can pray it out of you or beat it out of you. Uh, we have very little approaches, pretty much. But I had a time to process, and um, I kind of gotten a hand of, uh, through the mixture of <laughs> therapy and TikTok. Mm. Yes, so professionally, let's start with that because that's the mature thing for me to talk about. But professionally, I had been going to therapy for quite some time, but it's because I have adult diagnosed ADHD. And in that, my therapy sessions, you can imagine, were more geared toward how, you know, medication could support 
my workflow and things along those lines. But this for the first time was a time where I was processing my emotions, my history, and retelling and reliving certain things that I had put away in places that I didn't have to think about again. And what has been happening to me in as of recent was that like, because I'm a father, I have two daughters, one that's turned 16 as I was just talking about, and then I have a 12 year old, right? Very unique in their ways. But as a parent, what you realize is that when you're parenting a certain age kid, your parenting is different year by year. And for me, a lot of my trauma started coming to the surface as a parent. Because what would happen to me was, I'd see my kid at 10, and I'd think to myself as a parent, this is what I'm hearing they're going through. This is how I meet that need. But then in my mind, I'd switch myself into the other shoes, and I'd realize how much of a lack I was in. So through me parenting and doing what was, should be the right thing, even with, with having little at times, I've had little, but still I see that like, wow, in this situation, in this circumstance, I'm able to provide this kind of love, this kind of attention. It doesn't even have to always be financial. And at these stages, at these different milestones of the growth of my kids, I would realize more how little I had for myself. And it took parenting. So I had a lot of things that were triggering me and I had plenty of ways to tuck them away. Growing up for me, it was alcoholism. So from like 15 on to like my early 20s, that was pretty much what carried me through it. But before that, before drinking age, like I, I, I'd seen some shit, <laughs> you know what I mean? It got tough. But, um, you know, TikTok University kind of allowed me to take those, those realizations and put them in certain categories. And I learned about toxicity and beyond that narcissism. And for me, I was oblivious to narcissism. I thought narcissism was how you looked at yourself in terms of an image. I didn't know that there was a thing called empath. I didn't know there was a thing called covert narcissist and all the different forms of narcissist and all the types of toxicity I was able to now relate to my upbringing. And it was scary and crazy because here I am processing my experiences from early age, from very early age. And the problem was that like a lot of these things that we went through were common nature. And here we are as adults trying to do a few things. We're trying not to do the same thing for our kids. But at the same time we're doing that, we're like coming to these eye-opening, you know, realizations and we're like, yo, like I had it hard. I've had times in my parenting that I had to stop and go somewhere and say, oh, that's how I had it and cry through it. And I wasn't in a position to face my mom on all of that. Like I had to really learn about myself and, and get the professional help or whatever. But the other end of it was TikTok University. <laughs> you know, so in the combination of the two, I kind of got a good, um, a good grasp on what it was that happened to me growing up. And through all that, I was able to make that decision, of course, but it kind of, you know, it, it made me think of what we do. What's the antidote? Like, how do we, cause like in the hood, dealing with, dealing with like the traumas that we have, a lot of times we dampen the effects by turning into comedy. And I love comedy. I'm like, I'm a fan of comedy, but it's almost like putting that sugar in a spoonful of medicine. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing with like the way that we carry this trauma. Like how many times you remember talking about an ass whooping and you saying it in a joking way? You know what I mean? And it's like, we're now at a point like, and I see that a lot with like the younger generation, you know, this younger generation, like, you know, they're not with it. 
they know that was wrong. And it, it's up to us that, like, at least we can we can paint it. We know what just happened to us. But nonetheless, I learned a lot through TikTok. I learned a lot. And it wasn't only, like, narcissism, toxicity. I learned about ADHD. I learned about, you know, what what it was for us um, and our cultures and what it meant for our cultures and stuff. And I'd always studied and been exposed to those things. It's not that I got all those things from TikTok, but I got a good grasp on like the toxicity part. And I think it was large in part because TikTok is a platform where you're hearing people's stories. You're sharing from with people who are outside your bubble. A lot of times, like the other social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, a lot of it is based on your network and the people you're close to, right? TikTok, on the other hand, for me, was a place that I was able to grow with people who were strangers and hear people's personal experiences who I didn't know personally. And, and it, it, it came to me through an algorithm. And in this sense, I was exposed to real life stories that resonated with my real life story. And it wasn't just, you know, me listening to the facts and, and, and just learning about, you know, how you're diagnosed and, and those type of things. It was me hearing personal stories that I can relate to. And so there was a lot of emotional processing as well that went on. And so when you think about it, what's that, what does that dynamic replicate? The household. Because in that bubble, like, you know, I've experienced church hurt before too, where it was almost like it's a problem that you're even speaking on that because it's almost like you're going to cause more problems by speaking about it in public than dealing with it in private. But once it's in private, that's the devil's playground. It could be manipulated, swept under the rug, and that's the problem, that we deal with things in that way and we have for so long. And I think, unfortunately, the way like TikTok... I mean, the way that IG and the way that Facebook works kind of allows you to still be in that bubble. TikTok was a whole other thing for me. But anyway, that's that's my philosophy on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, like, you know, you really got to think about like the perspective and all the things that I introduced into my life to learn this. Because it wasn't only like social media and, and connecting with other individuals. As I grew as a dad, you know, I just started realizing as a parent, this is my reflection. This is what I'm seeing as a parent, and it's not fair. So I was going through that a lot, and I think it almost went to the surface, and then I found religion. And I got involved with religion crazy, too. Like, yo, I, I, was, I was a man of the fold, <laughs> of the cloth, I mean, not the fold. I was a man of the cloth for a little bit, too. And, um, like, I think the pressures, it was at a point, I was at a crossroads where the pressures got me into alcoholism in my early 20s. And I ran to religion and I think all those things were just surfacing because I was numbing everything and I was having a hard time with money and like I was up and down. I had times that I was up and then at this point I was down. Things were really bad for me. Everything was slipping away. And, um, you know, the alcohol was going up. I was getting in, you know, I was hurting myself even physically. Like I had to get hospitalized and put on an IV, all of that just to drink it. Like we was called never sober in the hood. We were going crazy, like, just with bottles and bottles. Like, at some point, it was crazy because, like, you're making some money and you could literally poison yourself because you got the money to do it. I was in that position. You know, I had a little bread in my pocket and I was blowing everything, just drinking. All these things was coming up to the surface and I was having a hard time dealing with it. But I, um, I remember strolling into a church and in a service, probably still smelling like alcohol and all that, I went to the front for altar call. 
And from that point on, things changed. And I could say I was, you know, kind of riding with religion, which suppressed it for a little bit. That was like a decade, 12 years or whatever. But still, even then, that was dope. You know, I'm not going to knock the experience. I could talk a whole lot about that in uh, subsequent episodes, you know. But my experience was my experience. And, you know, there was good and bad. And it was all kind of things you experience. Imagine dealing with the community of people who believe a certain thing, you know, whatever that thing is. And for me... It was helpful in the sense that it pulled me out of the environment I was in. And I was kind of like in a bubble for a while with religion. And that was dope. But there was problems in there too. You know, there was all kind of things in there. But all to say is like the problems were still tucked away somewhere. I still had all these unresolved bits. Things that needed to hit the surface. And before I even dealt with therapy, all those things were just being tucked somewhere. And I couldn't deal with it. So, you know, I connected therapy. Um... I had had therapy for ADHD um, as an adult, so I can kind of manage work and all that stuff. But at this point, like I had to shift my mindset from that victim that I was and everything that I was sharing about my experience to being a survivor. And that's what they teach you. Like even like DV survivors, they tell you think in that way. And so I began posturing myself with this type of positivity because now I'm met with all this unresolved, these unresolved bits. And um, I'm thinking about the Bronx, what I survived from the Bronx. You know, in the Bronx, it was like the Wild West. In the early 80s, just the guns going off, the amount of drugs, the, the, the blatant manner of drugs in the community. Like I had to watch as a kid, lines of crackheads. Like it wasn't even low. You know, buildings that had the bigger recesses in them had more hiding spaces. So there were more crackheads. If you lived in a building like that, if you had double entrances, if you had an accessible rooftop, like you woke up out of your apartment to crackheads in front of you. You know what I mean? You had to traverse through all of that. And as a kid, you're vulnerable because you're seeing this, but you can't really affect any change or escape. And so... Maybe it's common to the person listening to this because you're an adult and you traverse past all of that and maybe roll your eyes before a kid, the trauma associated with that, that being so close to you, and then you feeling like you're already in chaos at home, you don't get a break from it. It's all over. You have to process all of that. So the neglect and the abuse in home, in my environment, such a cesspool of trauma and me realizing as I go, as I grow, as I parent, all these areas, and I'm spelling them out differently now. Now they hurt differently. Now some things that hurt a certain way before, I'm remembering and they hurt more now. Or things that didn't hurt so much before hurt now. And it was like being under attack. It was crazy. That's the scary part of therapy. That's the part sometimes we avoid. We avoid pain. Or we find ways to mitigate that pain. But like it was the drug use at home because I watched that. Like, my family and the family I came from was a family that blatantly did things. We witnessed it, and it was from both sides. We witnessed it. It was the drug use. It was the sm smoking weed was at the bottom of the totem pole. That wasn't even a, a crazy thing. Like, we had crackheads on both sides. I had crackheads um, and drug dealers alike, like, on my sides of the family. But, like, those things are probably a little more common, but then we start thinking about the things that are a lot more cringe. Like, how does a 10-year-old boy deal with promiscuity in his house? Because I had to deal with that, too. Like, right now, think about that loose chick from the block with them two little kids. We was them two little kids. 
You know what I mean? That 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 one that's loose that you got stories on that you know how they get down, that you heard all that sucia stuff about. Like that was pretty much growing up, seeing your mom fighting on the street street with another girl over a guy and stuff like that, and processing like 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 every part of the environment was crazy. You know, watching my mom dating drug dealers. You know, that was a whole other trauma in itself because these guys would physically abuse her. But then having to process, and this is my experience, having to process, there's these men coming in my house quite often. These men are much bigger in stature than me, right? And they're with my mom. But then my mom is super promiscuous. She has multiple partners. I'm a kid, I'm seeing this. These people are not, these men are not acknowledging me and spending time with me. These men are like, you know, they're going to their prize. They know what they're there for. But that's because you're choosing to turn a blind eye to me. I see you clear. I hear you in the room with my mom. And it's unfortunate, but sometimes I can't tell if those yells are of pleasure or pain. And behind a closed door, a locked door, you know, her being reckless in that room, loud enough. If I, This was a subway-style apartment. This, the apartment, it was, the layout was front to back long. My room's by the window in the front. Your bedroom's all the way in the back. And dealing with that and, and what role that played on intimacy in my life as a man. Because I'm a young boy listening to this. There were times I would throw a baseball to the door. I'm not sure if they're hurting my mom because I also seen that too. I also seen my mom pinned up against the sofa getting her ass beat. And you're still screaming and moaning. But I also have seen the door being closed and she's having sex. And having that experience as a little, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old boy. My father's in jail and this is what's going on. And that things are blatantly done in the house, so things are not really hidden that much. And you gotta carry that through life until it's relevant or until it spills right out, right on your relationships, right on your parenting. That's, the, that's, that's unfortunately what we deal with when we got trauma that's unresolved. You gotta deal with that. I said it in the last episode, like, I had, like my father died the day before I started high school, 13 years old, on my hot boy summer. Remember, I had the Bugs Bunnies on. So I had my hot boy summer or whatever. My father passed away the day before I started high school, and they linked me up with therapy. But that therapy, like, I was liking it to the public defenders of lawyers. Like, the therapy they give you in school, it wasn't the same for me. And, you know, I, I hope it's changed, but for me, that was my experience. But what I needed to heal from was the promiscuity, the being in a single-parent home, having a father locked up, being a minority. You understand, not having enough influences around me and stuff, good influences as that, at that. The criminal implications, my mom got arrested too. A lot of times, like my father did time. My mom came out quicker because her age and other factors or her involvement in the case. But when it came to my mom, like she was out and she had a hard time trying to get jobs. And that all trickles down. You know what I mean? Like you're in a single family household, there's one income. We're dealing with face-to-face. We're dealing with, like, you know, different meetings and stuff like that. It was hard. It was so hard. There was an after-hours ordeal because, you know, 80s cocaine, pretty much. Like, that's a whole other chapter, but 80s cocaine was that, yo, man. So my mom would take these benders or whatever. I don't even know because I'm not in that drug world like that on that side or whatever. I've never been, right? But like, what you call it, a bender when you're on a drug for like a whole weekend or days or whatever. Whatever that thing is called, a bender, my mom used to be on those. And she used to go to the after hours. Like, there'll be hours that my mom would be gone. 
And this is not that you, yo, let me FaceTime my mom and see where she's at like nowadays. Like we had a house phone and we were told, don't pick up the phone. Don't answer the door. I'm 10, I'm 11. I have a younger brother at that. He's a year and a half younger than me. As if I was like, I'm still too young to be there by myself. And she go on these, you know, she be gone and they be cars pulling up, honking, asking where she's at. I don't even know what to say. Different men pulling up. Where you could find my mom, she was in Pototos. <laughs> Pototos was the after hour spot on Woodycrest on 166th Street. No, 165th Street in Woodycrest. It was a gate that you went down some stairs and they had converted this whole like basement area into a bar. And there was drugs, of course, but this was the wave. This is where my mom was at. And this is where she stood for all kind of hours. This was the afties. And it was common for us to have to see out the window to see if my mom would be there. And there was no number to call her. And she used to get a kick out of taking us to the bars sometimes too. And just, hey, this is my kid or whatever. Like we used to come straight from school and go to bars too. It was crazy. But that was where my mom was be. That was, you know, cocaine in the 80s. Pulling up at three in the morning with White Castle with like 30 cheeseburgers. Here comes me being obese. You know what I mean? Like, I remember days that we ate good, and I remember days that we had to deal with the roaches and the cereal. You know what I mean? I, I remember the days that she showed up with some other guy and food. I already know what time it is. So I'm eating for pleasure, and something else is happening in the other room. You know what I mean? No connection between me and the dude or whatever, because they're not there for that. Simply put, let me just get a meal in this fat little kid's stomach, and let me go do what I got to do in the room. At least that's how I articulate it now as an adult, which goes to the idea of you kind of go through these stages and you reprocess. Because I would never call it that before. I just remember, oh, my mom was doing the dirty or whatever way as a kid, I would see it. So through life, you go through these different coming of, of ages, you know what I mean? You go through these different reflections and sometimes they can wear you down. It could be a lot. But in the Bronx and this experience and those who've had this type of experience, you all know we're a resilient type of people. And when we're pushed to our limits, it's crazy, but we somehow produce some of our best art, best music. We got hip hop to show. And I can remember these times, because I wasn't the only kid. This story that I say seems very unique to those who haven't had that experience, but I'm talking to somebody who had it just like me. This is my Bronx story, it's our Bronx story. But we're resilient in that, with all that pain that was so commonplace, in our beautiful borough that we still have produced through this pain or in spite, despite this pain, some wonderful things. We've had legends come out of this borough, you know what I mean? And how, how tight knit or rather like, like you think of the demographic of the Bronx and you think about buildings and we have high density populations, whatever. We're a small place and we're just stacked on top of each other. And that's pressure in itself, but so much beauty comes out of it too. The arts. hip, And when I say hip hop, I'm not just talking about rap. I'm big on this on TikTok, but hip hop being the elements. All different elements of art, even street fashion, whatever. But the Bronx has been the whipping boy to New York City for so long. And when you think about it, right, we've produced, like you think of the attack that the Bronx has been under, right? It's kind of hard because you look, it's almost like the Bronx has the ability or the city has the ability to sweep under the rug or the torture it gives the Bronx. Because you think about it, right? Look at development, for example. Look at the data on asthma as how it pertains to like the development of like highways cutting through the Bronx, the cross Bronx. 
national rates. I'm not talking like when I'm not talking about like oh this borough breathes bad and this one's a little worse. Our rates are so bad that in comparison to the rest of the country, we rank up there. You know what else we rank up there in? Poverty. How many times have I said or reminded people being of the poorest congressional district in the United States? And that comes with its stuff, you know, the poor air quality, the Bronx ranking so low in poverty, and all the things that come out of poverty and all the trauma. And it's like a vicious cycle that we have to deal with. But I wasn't running clean laps myself. And I had it better than my mom. So who am I to judge her? And in my healing, I finally came to a point where I felt everything I needed to feel. And I was just left with a decision like, okay, now what? I processed everything. All those things that I went through, I went through them. I shouldn't have. And I wasn't the responsible adult in my story. But like, I had my stumbles and what I put into perspective was that my mom is human. My mom had her share of uh, good decisions and bad decisions and tough decisions, like we all do. And I'm not gonna get on her case for running a wrong lap. She ran the lap, the race is done. It's now my run and what I do for those that I choose to pass a baton to. My kids and everybody I stand to influence. Those young people I connect with on TikTok that I encourage or any other social media. The youth group that I've been in touch with even though I'm not in religion anymore. And I check in on them and I see how they're doing and I wish them well, a little gift here and there. You understand? So like, this is how it is or was for a lot of people in the hood. And in our high density populations, in our wonderful borough that's just stacked upon stacked upon stacked. Unfortunately, like like we have this urge and want, we have the desire to try to both rid our neighborhoods of drugs, violence, and crime, but yet we culturally enable our kin. Like we have kids that we continue the cycle with and we don't strive to grow past this. What we're passing off, like I'm trying to pass this baton of positivity to my kids, better resources, better ways to think of things, perspective. And we still have people amongst our population that's doing the opposite. You understand? Like really ruining our communities. So we all have a decision. And I can guarantee you without mental health or paying attention to it and doing the work, you're going to be on the bad side of things. But like in my case, I'm going to tell you really where shit really got out of hand. Yeah, like as if that wasn't enough going through the Bronx and everything, the commonality that I mentioned. And yeah, I could be telling the story and resonating with you because... Yeah, you know, I got pop out too. I got beat. I couldn't go outside. You know, the, the, my, my parents told me a story to tell my teacher if they ask, you know, the if I ask story, that that means you got your ass whooped, but you can't really over. And, you know, the criteria for abuse was different back then. The criteria for abuse was way different back then. Let me just tell you, like, less of a, a actual, like, rape or something crazy. Everything was hearsay. You know what I mean? Like, like. There was not much recourse. You were really under the authority of your parent, like, in, entirely. Like, it was crazy. You know, I actually ran away once, too. But I didn't go for... I ran away to McDonald's. The McDonald's on 161st Street. Like, I had enough. I used to... My runaway spots was to McDonald's. I did that a couple times. Yo, nobody noticed I was missing either, though. Oh, my God. I ran away, and I came back home. I went through the door, and I was served dinner. <laughs> but I had my ass whipped right before I left. Like, I... Yo, bro, they didn't even look for me. They didn't even notice I was missing. And the other times I used to run out, yo, my mom used to have close calls and the whip, like you, you could hear it whipping in the air. I'll be already down the stairs at my grandfather's house. 
whatever. But nonetheless, like these things, I know I can joke. I'm joking. Even I'm, I'm even joking about it now or saying it in a humorous way. But it was scary. It was frightening, you know. And and that's the problem. You know, I think my problem or what I struggle with is the accountability and how we present this information. What we're gonna do with it? Are we just gonna joke about it and say, oh yeah, I went through that too? And we're on common grounds. Like that's not cool, especially for the young, younger generation. That like, we gotta call that out. We gotta call it what it is, you know? So I think like what we tend to do in the areas that we live in, we turn a blind eye to it. And we now raise these little monsters that get unchecked because there's no accountability. But in my case, again, like with my mom, where shit really started hitting the fan, like there was this one night, all right, so this is crazy guys. So like buckle in. This is 10 year old me in the eighties. I'm in my apartment with my mom. My room and my brother's room are right by the front of the house. And my mom's is all the way in the back. The back was a little creepy because we had a backyard. And on our windows, we had these gates that a human shouldn't be able to fit through. But we still had these gates for protection just in case. We had a large gate off to the side of the house where you could not climb. But then again, this is the 80s and crack, so it was quite possible. But here we go, getting closer into the evening right? Light is turning to dark. It is nighttime. It should be close to bedtime for a 10-year-old. It's about that time. There's lights on in the house. And so my mom walks to where my brother and I are at. We're in the living room. My mom comes across to us and she's whispering and she has this scared and crazy, almost possessed face on her. And now she's looking at us and she's whispering and her eyes are wide open and she's looking left and right, almost like a puppet. The way a puppet kind of look left and right and the way they are animated, she had that face, trying to speak to us like a ventriloquist. She was speaking loud enough that we can hear she was trying to communicate something, but her teeth were gritting together, closed tight. I've seen that face before. I've seen that influence before. But there was something more fearful in her eyes than the usual, she just took a passe. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like she came at us with this other energy. She was scared. The monster at home was scared of something else. Inside of home? Like we lived outside with some zombies, right? I mean, this I'm telling it to you like 10-year-old me because that's who was going through it. I'm in zombie land in the Bronx, the top of crack era. There's people shooting unreliable Mac 10s through the hood. There's dudes running up and put, yo, I had this instance where a dude ran down the block. I'm sitting on the car with other little kids. Homie put the gun up my back. I said, yo, shorty, hold this. And kept running. I ain't no snitch, so I ain't say nothing. <laughs> then he came back for his gun, and I stood in that spot. Cars flying up the block. You understand? Like, it was wild outside. But when you're home, home's got to be chill. So, I mean, for us, it wasn't chill because we knew we had a monster. But the monster came to us scared, so something's popping. So she comes to us, my, my younger brother and I. And now we're making more sense of what she's trying to communicate. She's telling us, there's a guy under my bed. You heard that correct. I'm not going to whisper it this time. She said, there's a guy under her bed. Mind you, my mom has to be on drugs because she always was on drugs. So let's just push that to the side and not say, oh, the drugs. Everything was, oh, the drugs. This was not your normal day. She's telling us there's a guy and, and it got worse because she tells us this guy is under her bed and that he's pricking her with a needle. That she's pricking, he's pricking her as she lays on her bed with a needle and that he's still there. 
Furthermore, she hands us knives and she tells us a plan. She starts making a plan. She tells us, I'm going to lift the bed. And she goes off to explaining, how, describing how she's going to lift the bed at a certain angle that the guy is under the box spring and where she's going to position herself and where we're to go so we can stab this guy up because he's in our house and somebody left the backyard door open or he could have came in, which he couldn't have because a human couldn't fit through that gate. Like it was very narrow, but you know, drugs and I don't know whatever other, and this is why it's important for mental health. Like I think at least with mental health, you could kind of distinguish, yo, is this drugs or not? Like, are you bugging or is it a drug? And in my case, it was a mix of both things. And since there's no diagnosis, I can't say, oh, it's my mom's blank acting up again. This is like Coke plus something clearly, but I'm 10 and you're about to pass me a knife to body somebody, a man. Now, I want you to come into the realization that I came into. Yes, I, you heard me. I'm about to, as a 10-year-old kid, stab a man to death. Let me open that up for you. As a 10-year-old boy, I had been watching men adult men beat the shit out of my mom as a 10 year old boy i had had my ass beaten the shit out of so you want me at the same age to go ahead and overtake this man who has the capability of beating the one that overpowers me immediately it don't make no sense but what you going to do to the monster in front of you? You going to really say no? Or you going to do it? You know what I mean? So I'm faced now at 10 years old with a decision of now having to, for my first time, hunt a beast in all its potential. I know that beast's strength. I've watched it before pound fist after fist upon my mom's body. And I know my mom's body and what she's capable of because I've felt it on my own body. I have to suspend fears going through my body and mind at that moment to go ahead and do a task that's demanded of me. You know what I mean? Like, I got orders, and in this current situation, it's forcing my maturity to speed up for just a moment. And I have to reach within myself and suspend these fears in order to take action at that spot. And what we do, pushing the fear aside and preparing myself mentally for what's about to happen. We go with the plan. We run up. My mom holds the mattress up, flopping on one end. I tuck my heavier body on one side. My brother tucks his lighter body on the other side. And we proceed to stab and stab, feeling the resistance of the box spring hitting the blade, but not seeing the return of blood on the, on the knife. At 10, I went through every experience I needed to to prepare myself to kill somebody. That shit is trauma. Here is something you can't understand, how I could just kill a man. That song resonates, it hits. I don't understand it because my body at 10 years old went through every motion to kill somebody and did it. And I was convinced I was doing that. And mental health is crazy because I have to share these stories and other stories with my therapist and stuff like that. And it became a lot. And these are the kind of stories that come to surface. And so when we talk about estrangement and we talk about, yo, I need a minute, yo, that's real. When we say like, yo, I need some time, I need a break, sometimes we need a break from our loved ones. They might mean well, but that don't make them not toxic. That might not make like ammonia and bleach are two things that are helpful on their own, but you put them together, that's toxic. Sometimes people just don't mix together. And me as an adult, 
I don't have to mix with my mother the way I mixed before. I'm not under her rule. I don't need anything from her. And so realizing that I'm an adult now and I'm in charge of this dynamic, I was able to come to terms, set some boundaries, and let her in. So it was a lot. And drugs and the result of bad highs and this kind of lifestyle to get you out of pocket like that and to get a kid to be so traumatized is intense. We don't know as parents the things that we cause people, our kids, and what the effect is going to have on them because we have no clue or no way to tell when it's going to come to surface. So guys, be well. Do good. Yeah, they didn't do good with me, but um, I guess uh, we forgive in one way or, or another. And my forgiveness is not forgetting anything. And that goes for everybody. I'm not singling my mom out with that one. It's across the board, to be fair. I could forgive you in a sense that I'm not going to ride with you no more. I don't have to be in your circle and stuff, but I'm not holding this thing over your head no more. If you did it, it might mean this is how I got to move when I'm around you, including family and the people I love the most, because I only got but so much time left on this earth. Why am I going to waste my time? My time's more valuable than money. You're going to ruin that? You've already did this to me. You showed me how close I should be with you. Anyway, that's my theory on like you know forgiveness. But you know you have to be in a position to factor all these things in. And this is one of the things that come up with estrangement and, and this decision or whatever. But when I look back, like we didn't know much about these diagnoses. So like it hit me as a late adult all at once, like bricks. <clears throat> Couldn't deal with it. I never processed it before. So it hit me late in the game. I wish I knew sooner how to do these things. But I had therapy in the DBT track. And the DBT track, what it was pretty much uh, for the short while that I was taking it, was you go through this process with your therapist where they'll say like a year and it gets really intense. And my journey with this therapist was pretty much she'll tell me a year or she'll ask me, talk to me about when you was nine. And she'll ask me specific questions that'll get me to think through different angles. And she'll tell me to switch characters. And some of the characters that I'll play with would be me playing myself at a certain age, me reversing roles and being my mother. And that was able, that, what that allowed me to do was see things much better, much forgiving and much worse all at the same time. And there were times that I just had to ball up and cry after a session because it was just way too intense. But there was one question that was more intense in the short time that I had this therapist. And in all that that I just shared with you about the trauma, the pain, the abuse, the neglect, my father at some point was home from jail and the abuse continued. And I never put thought into it enough to make this connection, but the therapist blew my mind with this question. The therapist said, what did your father do about it? And that threw me off such a simple question because Father did nothing about it, not because he wasn't a bad man. I never told him. I never told my father. I was seeing my father at this point every weekend. My father was sending me allowance. And it wasn't only the weekend. There were days, you know, he was catching up. He had just did a five-year bit. He was trying to catch up with life. Therapist made me think. It was like, I never think about it that way. I never, and I don't remember, I can't recall that it was fear that, present, that prevented me from sharing with my father what I was going through the promiscuity, excessive drug abuse, the, the physical abuse, verbal abuse, which was crazy. I didn't share none of that with my dad, and I cried, and that hit me hard. Because like, the other part of it was like a follow-up question. You know, like, not only that, but like, what would your father have done about it? 
That was the follow-up. And the answer was every bit of everything I needed. Certainly, without a doubt, had I told my father, everything would have changed. Everything would have changed. And it's to show you like the power you lose. I had completely lost my voice at some point I didn't even know. And I had to regain it on my own through these experiences, through how I journeyed the Bronx in my teen years, through all my close calls and encounters. This is how some of us in our coming of age learn and, and deal and process. We don't even notice how much we're carrying it and how it comes out of us. But, you know, she pretty much asked me that question and then I began to think like, yo, she beat me to the point of blood. She sniffed cocaine in front of us of all the offenses and she wouldn't even hide it much. She'd be behind us, but you know what I mean? She'd be so loud in the bathroom. I mean, she'd be low, so loud. <laughs> I'm loud in the bathroom, that's not a problem. She'd be low, so loud in the bedroom as I shared. Like, even that alone, like, that's not even physical abuse, but that's a whole other category of trauma. Even if I told my father and I was spared from that, had that been the only thing it was, which unfortunately, it happens all around us. And me, here I am, getting to remember the story so vividly to share with you. I hope somebody could think twice and hear this and think twice about their own household and what they set up is. This ain't no judgment. I'm just telling you how it is from my perspective. You reflect on it whichever way you could. But then I realized how, in the sense that I didn't get to think to tell my father none of this, I shared another story with my therapist and I shared another story and we went deeper and deeper in therapy over the course of three months and then she left the practice. She was gone. I had opened up. I had a certain intensive track of therapy to deal with. I was excited at the result and what I was processing, but it was painful. And I opened up to this person, not thinking I have to do this all over again, but I was spelling it out. It was like a fight. It was like going in the ring. I needed recovery time. I needed 15 minutes to myself after each 45 minute session. But she left the practice. And I may have left her with the story about my mom wilding on drugs or it was a mental breakdown, whatever it was that she had us killing a person. But as if this ordeal wasn't enough in the 80s, I would have that day went back to school in the fifth grade with my teacher, Mr. Pretchup. And this was a teacher that told me often I wouldn't be anything in life. But that one is another one of my Bronx stories.